I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Fear returned to the giddy Wall Street markets this week, as the New York Times put it. Fear for the global economy and the long term. More than for stock prices. It's a fear that the big players don't much talk about, but doubtless a version of common household anxiety about staying afloat between panicky ups and downs. So it feels like a moment to ask a lot of the innocent questions we all have about the storm out there, the winds and the losses, the direction of things, the name of the game, this mystery called free market capitalism. We connect the word capitalism habitually with freedom of markets and money, with risks and rewards that are not for everybody. In recent years, we got used to seeing huge profits privatized, many losses socialized, We bail out the losers, and the game goes on. But is this game in trouble? In weeks ahead, we're going to have a variety of conversations about capitalism. This hour, we begin with the writer Jeff Madrick and his very readable collection of seven bad ideas in the economic mainstream. Ralph Nader will join us, the sometime presidential candidate, full-time anthropologist of street-level America, and the all-purpose independent, angst-ridden economist Lawrence Kotlikoff of Boston University is with us in the studio. Jeff Madrick, stand by with those seven bad ideas that we inhale every day. While we listened to Vox Pop in Boston this week, we asked citizens on Boston Common and in high-tech Central Square, Cambridge, is capitalism working for you? Capitalism? Yeah, it's working. Well, we're all prospering. We're all living a good life. Capitalism is a tool to make money. When people are fearful, in other words, when things are going down, that's the opportunity. It's a mythology in the States that people believe in probably more strongly than most people believe in their religions, and it's not sustainable. Uh, I think it is working pretty well. I think uh, you know, free market capitalism is, is the way to go. I came from a socialist country, former Yugoslavia, and I have made well here. There's a good quote saying, capitalism may not be perfect, but nothing else has been invented that's better. It's kind of like democracy. I'm from China, and I hope socialism is going to work. Yes? You either win, which means you become fabulously wealthy, or you lose, which means you sacrifice for the people who do become fabulously wealthy. Jeff Madrick, welcome. That's the people talking. The subtitle of your book... Interesting. (laughs) We'll we'll come back to them. Uh, Your book of corrections is called, subtitled, How Mainstream Economists Have Damaged America and the World. I'd settle for three bad ideas to remember or just diagnose three unmistakable symptoms of, of, of the problem you're talking about? Well, let me tell you, the hub, of the, the hub of the ideas, and the others come out of this hub as I spoke, is uh, uh, undying faith in the invisible hand, that a free market uh, with buyers and sellers coming together and government nowhere in sight will lead to the most prosperity for all. So to take one simple example of that, one reason so many economists and so many people think there should be no minimum wage law, is that they assume the free market works to pay us all what we deserve. 
business won't make excess profits and we'll all get paid exactly what we contribute to that business and therefore to the economy. Um, <clears throat> so you get sophisticated economists saying, no, you raise the wage and you'll lose jobs. Well, uh, you may lose a couple of jobs, but the fact is the free, the free market, the invisible hand, does not work that well. It's a beautiful idea, but it's merely an idea about how markets may work, not how they really work. And when you actually go and look at what happens when you raise those wages, a lot of very good economists have found, indeed, that it doesn't lose jobs. Or it loses very, very few jobs, and people make more money with a higher minimum wage. Now, all this depends on the time and the circumstance and the appropriate, yeah, the appropriate response in an appropriate environment, but by and large, we need the minimum wage. So that's one idea. Maybe the most dangerous idea of the moment uh, in fact, of the last 30 years, I think, has been something uh, economists call inflation targeting. Now, there's a hard form of inflation targeting, a soft form. But what it says is we've got to keep inflation low. Somehow, the number 2% can, literally almost came out of the air, air frankly. I'm not exaggerating. We, uh, The central bank should keep consumer prices rising no faster than 2%. But to do that, in my view, you have to suppress wage growth. You have to keep the economy growing slow enough so these workers, that is to say working stiffs like you and me, won't ask for raises because we're too afraid to uh, lose our jobs. Now, again, your listeners may say, what is this guy talking about? But that's exactly what Alan Greenspan, the famous chairman of the Federal Reserve, used to keep track of, how afraid workers were. He'd look at the quit rate. If workers were willing to quit, they were secure. Watch out. If they weren't willing to quit, that's what he liked best. So he liked to keep a balance there. What's happened is that inflation targeting has kept uh, uh, growth too slow, interest rates relatively too high, depending on uh, circumstances, and I believe is a main contributor to stagnating wages for 30 or 40 uh, years. Jeff Frederick, I, I, I want to ask, yeah, did, did yeah, Adam Smith believe in the invisible hand? Have we ever seen, over a sustained period, a self-balancing market? That's a very good point. Adam Smith called this process the invisible hand. I believe he believed that this is the way a market could work, exactly what I'm saying. But Adam Smith wrote in a time when you couldn't imagine that government wouldn't be involved. He would, could not be a Milton Friedman today who would argue for minimal or almost no involvement. And in fact, Milton Friedman would tell people the best times, it was an amazing, uh, uh, amazing ignorance about history, was early America when we didn't have government around. Well, we never had free market capitalism. In the colonial days, there were all kinds of regulations. We didn't have free labor. Remember your old high school school books? We had indentured servants, for God's sakes, not to mention slavery. So no, there's never been a rich country that has had f pure free markets. There's never been a rich country that, for example, has had privatized education. Almost none that's have private major transportation facilities, for example. Jeff, would you deal with a subject you, you, you refer to it as, as Milton Friedman on steroids or whatever, Milton Friedman out of control, and that's the whole 
experience of globalization in, in the last, say, especially 20, 30 years, but basically the notion of that money should not have borders, that it, right. should, well, it should go everywhere. And I want you to contrast that with the actual history of international development. Including our own, right? Milton, I mean, I call it Milton Friedman writ large, or Friedman's folly writ large. It's the invisible hand applied across the world, and what hap- what happens is, by and large, some economists. I mean, other economists are clearer about this, but some economists argue for a basically a one size fits all economies. Now, after World War II, we had the Bretton Woods system where the dollar was the kingpin, and we started to try and reduce tariffs around the world. I think that was a good system. The bigger the markets, the better you get so-called economies of scale, but a good system only up to a point. And the first 20 or 25 years of Bretton Woods really wasn't the pure free trade system that was envisioned 15 and 20 years later. Countries were allowed space to develop their own industries. They were allowed space, in fact, to buy and large cheat. We didn't sit around and tell the Japanese, send us all your exports. We tried to, contr- to modify and control those exports. Now, Detroit would be a stodgy old place if there weren't some free trade competition, but it wasn't nearly that simple. So my argument is countries need space to develop. Yeah, we should move towards free trade, but on a very cautious basis with clearly in mind that this invisible hand globally is not going to work. There are always losers in free trade. And let me just make one point. A lot lot of countries out there know that, too. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, People... Every time an economist suggests we we should have more free trade, uh, he or she should also talk about substantially improving the safety net because there are virtually always losers in free trade. There are winners, but there are always losers. We need more unemployment insurance, more training, more wage support for the people who lose jobs, and even sometimes support for specific industries to keep them going. You remind us in the book that the United States built its some of its biggest, proudest industries behind tariff barriers. That, that, and for a young economy, it's almost essential. I mean, how would that restrain us in the real world today? There are no major rich countries today that didn't have uh, major tariff barriers to protect the development of their manufacturers in the 1800s. Uh, you'll always find an economist who will argue, well, uh, the domestic prices were way, way up as a result of that, and we would have done better with free trade. Well, the fact is there are no real examples of that ever happening. What, what's, the best, what's, the best example, what's the best example of damage from a, kind of an unrestrained global earth-is-flat uh, market in money? In money, the best no. example were the, was the East Asian crisis. So that's was, very good that you bring that up because it wasn't only trade of uh, Buicks and you know Mercedes and Toyotas. Eventually, they removed all controls on capital flows, so capital could flow anywhere. Well, that led to lots of hot money entering the Asian East Asian markets: uh, Malaysia, Thailand, Korea, South Korea, and so forth. And that pretty soon led to a crisis of over-speculation in those countries. And the money was so hot, there were no controls, that once the crisis started, money fled, 
and those countries sunk into very and, and, severe recession. And we can we can sympathize with them, sort of holding the bag. Uh, the question in my mind, the essay question later on, Jeff, is going to be, why did we as Americans surrender the general health of our countries? You know, as Malaysia doesn't want to surrender its, surrender those considerations to this mantra of free market capitalism. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Looking for the right questions to ask about a capitalist system that leaves so many people out of the goodies and does not seem to be investing in any of us for the long term. With the writer Jeff Madrick and now Ralph Nader. Welcome. You're the great icon, Ralph, of citizen power in the country, even if some people still resent you for your third-party politics. Your new book confirms my sense of you as, if I may say, a fearless eye on this country in our times. It's called Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. It's macro, it's micro over the decades at levels where ordinary people live and work and shop and play and win and lose. What does capitalism have to do with the world as you describe it, Ralph? First of all, the word capitalism to describe our economic system is is a myth. Capitalism is the model that Adam Smith posited when he used the word invisible hand. That is, a lot of sellers that couldn't rig the market to a lot of buyers. So there was no monopoly in the predicate of the uh, collective success of uh, of the uh, invisible hand, as George Carlin said, uh, in our country we t- we turned the invisible hand into the into a middle finger. So, <laughs> well, our man on the street in 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 Boston said it's 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 mythology on its way to religion. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> societies are controlled by myths, uh, shaped and implemented by the top one percent or so, the oligarchy or the plutocracy. And it's been that way in most societies in varying degrees, uh, and. If you look at what the economic system is today, you can start by saying it's government-guaranteed corporate capitalism. Not small business. Hmm. Big companies uh, are too big to fail. They are constantly uh, influencing government to give them handouts, uh, giveaways on the public lands, uh, subsidies, bailouts of Wall Street, uh, rigged tax systems that... uh, allow huge opportunities for tax escapees to tax havens and to defer taxes and to depreciate rapidly and to avoid uh, adequate uh, effective tax rates on the part of corporations. So their contribution to the revenues of the federal government is about 8 or 9%, and in the 1950s it was you know, around 25 30%. And, and so the corporations have their handout in Washington, and if you look around the country, uh, I don't know who you interviewed on the Boston Commons, but most of the low-income people don't walk around on the Boston Colum- Columns. You'd be surprised. Columns, uh, You'd be surprised. Looking, uh, looking for, l- looking for uh, uh, a microphone to answer a question, <laughs> because 80% of the American people, at least, are making less today in inflation-adjusted household income than they made 30 and 35 years ago. In fact, I think 1973 was the highest real wage uh, in America for about 80% of the workers. And 30 million workers are making less today, even though worker productivity has doubled since the 60s. 30 million workers, the people who clean up after us, service food, produce the food, take care of our ailing grandparents, they're making less today 
than workers made in 1968 adjusted for inflation. How, how can anybody say uh, corporate capitalism is working for them? Well, I and ask you, you have, why do people reflexively, why have they uh, assumed the doctrine that it's working for me, I got a job? Well, I mean, t- top 20% are doing okay, 10% really okay, top 1% spectacularly okay. Um, but, you know, the 80% don't appear on the screens. They don't appear on the nightly news. They don't appear even on 60 Minutes. They don't have a voice. They don't get into the newspapers. You know, you have a single mom with two kids. She's paying $800 or $1,000 for daycare. She's got a Walmart job and $9 an hour. She's trying to get a part-time job in Home Depot. She's paying money for her car and her insurance. You think these people show up at town meetings or at marches or get on TV? There's a huge, silent uh, majority of repressed people, and someday they're going to realize that they have the power that they're not using, in part because we educate people to believe rather than think when they're children, uh, to obey rather than dissent when they're children, and they grow up corporate. They spend far more time in corporate marketing hands than they do with their parents. I mean, just think of... uh, what they see on television and, and now on the computer, it's direct marketing to children, undermining parental authority. They start going after these kids when they're four, five, six, seven, eight, junk food, hmm. cosmetics for kid, uh, girls at age seven, violent toys for boys at age five. And then the addictive industries move in when they go into their preteen uh, years. And do they go to school and learn about corporate power? No. At best, they learn to be cogs in a wheel by looking at a computer and trying to learn how to run a run a computer. Ralph, so, let, you know, let, we, we, let me just say I, I, I'm glad you you draw this picture of kids growing up. One, I, I treasure a, a visit you gave me in your hometown, Winston, Connecticut, two years ago, and we walked through a kind of living history, part relic, part not of a. New England factory town where you grew up, your father had a restaurant, and uh, not that it was heaven, but there was tremendous vitality in that whole thing. And a lot of the qualities we love about American uh, economy, um, competition and a certain fairness, community standards. Um, Summarize the, the, the lesson that you gave me, remembering seeing the trucks and the trains that took the the machinery, the, the machinery-making machinery out of that town to the south originally, eventually to Asia. Uh, give us the moral uh, summary of, of what you saw up close in, in, in your formation. Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't paradise. It was a town of 10,000 people in northwest Connecticut, crossed by two rivers, uh, one of which gave power to the factories. In 1900, it had about 100 factories and fabrication plants, uh, uh, shops. They produced everything from textiles uh, to pins uh, to uh, molds uh, to, uh, uh, I mean, you name it, uh, they produced, uh, you know, appliances. And most people had jobs, and they walked to their jobs, and uh, they didn't commute. And so there was a little bit more time to find out what was going on in town. They walked into restaurants. Sure, they talked about the Red Sox and the Yankees, but they also talked about local politics. There wasn't a fast food frenzied atmosphere. You went down to Dad's restaurant, and they said, you know, for 
a nickel, you got a cup of coffee and 10 minutes of political conversation. <laughs> and uh, as a result, you know, you had the local courthouse, county courthouse there. Uh, you, you had the railroad that had seven trains uh, to go to New York, 120 miles away. And then right after World War II, when I was a kid, I see these huge flatbed trucks with textile equipment coming from Massachusetts and Vermont, New Hampshire, heading south to low-wage Mississippi, anti-union South Carolina, denuding the textile industry. And then it, it just accelerated. You had large companies in New York acquiring uh, treasured firms in Winston, like the Gilbert Clock Company. It was world famous. And within three, four years, it was shut down. Uh, then, then you had uh, the globalization started, and the last remaining factories were shut down. They couldn't compete with uh, brand-new equipment and 80 cents an hour Chinese labor uh, exporting back here. That's not comparative advantage. That's what Paul Samuelson, the MIT economist in his later years, called absolute advantage. Mm. So the whole, you know, win-win of trade is a farce. You cannot compete with child labor in Bangladesh using uh, productive equipment and shipping to the U.S. because the World Trade Organization agreement for to which we are signatories prohibits us passing a law in Congress uh, banning products made by brutalized child labor abroad because that's not um, banned in the World Trade Agreement. So we lose our independence. We're losing more of our sovereignty. Uh, big corporations are going abroad. They're abandoning our country. And we facilitate this exodus with uh, our tax system and uh, these trade agreements that are, that are pulled down corporate managed trade agreements. And what happens? I mean, it's amazing. These giant corporations grew in, in, in the U.S. on the backs of American workers. When they got in trouble, they went to Washington. They were bailed out by American taxpayers. When they got in trouble abroad, they were defended by the U.S. Marines. And what's their response to the American people? Is it gratitude? No. We're out of here with your jobs and industries to fascist and communist regimes abroad. But hold it there for a moment, Ralph. You wouldn't have expected, you know, time to stop altogether on, 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 on a very uh, attractive Norman Rockwell kind of picture. Uh, where in two or three places might you have drawn a line, though, to assert some value other than free-flowing money? You mean in the town? Well, yeah, in, in, in that. Bring it back to people's general curiosity about where capitalism is going, you know, what its inner mechanism or morality might be. Where, where would you have drawn some lines to change that history of Winston, Connecticut? Well, for, first Assuming all, you couldn't preserve this, it in this amber. This a town, by the way, where a textile worker, not exactly highly paid, uh, could support a family with a six-room house, 2% uh, mortgage interest rate, and uh, a second-hand car. You couldn't have three textile workers today uh, do that. What happened? An important Winston, point. Go ahead. What happened in Winston happened everywhere. What happened is the self-sufficiency of these towns. I mean, I could hear the dairy cows, you know, moo when we get the milk, you know, two hours later. Uh, vegetables were grown uh, around uh, the outskirts of the town. We now uh, bring uh, tomatoes from uh, California and Mexico to Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, and uh, they don't taste that good either, as local uh, uh, vegetables uh, uh, do. What happened is really part uh, of a silent coup d'etat 
as corporations got bigger, uh, they gamed the government system. They learned how to influence more than any other outside influence every department agency in Washington, including the Department of Labor. They developed huge uh, ca- uh, cash campaign uh, entities called PACs. They put their uh, officials, their executives in high government positions, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Defense, you name it. And uh, they pretty much, 1,500 of them, I would guess now, corporations, pretty much get their way with the majority of 535 members Mm. of Congress. Now, on the other side, there's no excuse for people thinking they can't turn this around. I go around the country telling people it's a lot easier than you think, because when you get public sentiment wanting a living wage, that comes in 70-80% now. When you get a, a majority, even with the propaganda against it, going for full Medicare for everybody and nobody out, free choice of doctor and hospital, when you get people who want a tough corporate crime enforcement, crack down on those Wall Street crooks and those oil companies and have a fair tax system, when you get people who are beginning to understand that this, these corporate managed trade agreements mean unemployment and hollowed out communities, it only takes about 1% of the citizenry organized in congressional districts. You take, say, 3 million people and you divide them by, five, by 435 districts. And a, a modest effort coordinated with the Internet helping, opening up uh, advocacy units of four people in every district, and these people volunteering 200 hours a year, you could take a whole 10-point agenda in this country of long overdue block changes for a better life and get it through Congress in 36 months. We'll we'll embrace it if we see it. But I I want to bring Jeff Madrick back on a a bit of a flip, Jeff. I'm listening to Ralph's uh, litany of of the way it was, or or we remember it, I want you to try out seven good ideas among the things he's been talking about. Assuming we love the work ethic and that we're proud of our productive economy. We like enterprise. We like invention. We like innovation, even even some disruption. We like change. We like competition. We like some risk. We like fairness of the sort that holds towns like Winston, Connecticut uh, together. We don't like corruption. How do we bring the, 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 the good ideas into play again. Well, you know, the thing, I mean, I agree a lot with a lot that Ralph's saying, but I think he's also uh, uh, exaggerated certain parts of it. I mean, it's not the kids learn to be cogs and machines. It's that they need a job. They don't have much choice. We have to, we have to learn how to protect the laborer and give them a fair wage. But we also have to face the reality of, of uh, changing technologies. Um, when uh, you're talking about Winston, Connecticut, at a time when we already went through an industrial revolution in the late 1800s, and workers were abused, we had to learn as a society to protect those workers. Now, some economists today would say they were abused. You know, they got what they deserved. Well, they didn't get what they deserved. We needed government to go protect them, allow them to form unions and so forth, and fight back, and they did fight back. So this is not a change of the last 30 or 40 years. This battle has been going on for a long time, and it's not new. While I think corporate influence has reached a horrid 
uh, level uh, without question, and it is in many respects a corporate welfare state. It's not just that, and it's not that new in our society. There's always, uh, and, and, and you, it, it's not, I, I think we have to be very clear in the post-World War II period, incomes went up well. Lots of people did very well. What was going on then that's not going on now? Well, part of it is global competition. There's no doubt about that. But part of it is the loss of the loss of a sense of bargaining power for workers, the loss of a sense of uh, that we owe each other something. We don't have that sense anymore. It's a free-for-all, take what you can out of this economy and run, a, run with it. And my uh, my argument, my book, Seven Bad Ideas, is that mainstream economists have joined in many respects, and there are always exceptions, and some economists do excellent jobs, but in many respects have joined the bad guys and provided uh, faux-sophisticated, make-believe sophisticated arguments. Uh, uh, Ralph, uh, Jeff, I want you to let Ralph respond. I mean, uh, how much of the problem is new? Uh, Ralph. Well, I mean, uh, the corporate welfare has been going on, you know, for over 200 years. I mean, let's face it. Alexander Hamilton de- developed the case for it. Uh, but what's happened now is it, it's gone completely uh, out of control. I mean, when we were kids in New England, we, we never dreamed that professional sports teams would have the taxpayer build the stadiums and the ballparks and then, get, in effect, give it to the team. Uh, the range of corporate welfare is so massive in Washington. There's no compilation of all the programs. I mean, half of Washington, what Washington does is just shoveling out privileges like that to a dazzling array of corporations. Intel is on welfare. Microsoft is on welfare. Cisco is on welfare. Apple is on welfare. How? Because they get tax credits from the U.S. Treasury, just like a check, to encourage them to engage in research and development. The drug companies are on welfare. They get tax credits for research and development, and they also get billions of dollars of free drugs developed by the National Institutes of Health under contract with universities and medical schools and so forth. They get it free under credit agreements, monopoly marketing agreements, like tax all goes to Bristol Myers Squibb. Thirty-one million dollars of tax. But, but money Ralph, how 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 would you how would you and, wait, reass- and, and see and then and then they turn around and charge the American people the highest prices because we don't have drug price control unlike Canada or Switzerland or Mexico. So in other words, it's gotten much worse. Given the size of our economy and GDP, we shouldn't have any poverty. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden, probing capitalism with Ralph Nader, Jeff Madrick, and the senior sage economist at Boston University, Lawrence Kotlikoff, who's neither right nor left, but deeply worried about a shipwreck ahead for our children. Larry, welcome. But first, just listen to a snippet from our conversation two weeks ago with Jeremy Grantham, a giant investor of other people's money. He's talking here about gaps in a market system that he has played with immense success. I've spent a big chunk of the last 10 years being constantly surprised that the financial system is not as efficient as I thought it might be. Then believing that it was really quite inefficient, and finally believing that it was capable of being gloriously inefficient and not taking any signals, like being kicked on the knee and not even noticing it. And then, over the last six or seven years, 
beginning to realize that capitalism itself suffers from some of the same problems. Capitalism, I like to say, does millions of things better than government-regulated systems. But it does do one or two things rather badly. And the bad news is those one or two things are beginning to appear increasingly important, perhaps even the most important issues. It doesn't do long horizons very well, capitalism. Larry Kotlikoff, go back to Jeff Madrick's seven bad ideas. Is there any defending or explaining these economists of yours? Well, I don't know. You know, there's 20,000 economists in this country, uh, members of the American Economic Association, to try and uh, come up with these caricatures of what they believe and uh, uh, go after one, you know, seven. I'm sure you can find uh, more than seven uh, bad I, bad notions, but I don't think that's really the, the key issues that we um, are facing. It's not the problem that economists uh, are, are causing all these uh Concerns. Uh, I think we have uh, a lot of the things that Jeff's concerned about and that Ralph just pointed out, I'm deeply concerned about as well. And Jeremy just referenced um, we do have a country that's not working. And uh, uh, we have to think about policies that are going to turn things around uh, and do it rapidly. And we do have to think about the long term. We have to uh, realize that our kids are at stake. It's not. it's really our kids or us is the, the watchword of our country going forward. It has to be. And that's something that you can unite both the Republicans and the Democrats. It's something nobody's tried to talk about. Well, well you're, you're trying. And I've been reading your reform agenda online, your so-called purple plans, purple because they're red and blue. Uh, and I'm staggered, i got to say. Multi-trillions of public debt hidden Enron style, you say, an unreformed trust me, banking system that's ready to explode again, plus growth at a crawl. We're saving nothing, investing next to nothing, you say. We're on our way to Argentina. I mean, that's, that's your, your line. Yeah. There's, obviously, the government has to play a, a key role. The cap, um, free markets work in some areas and don't work and work miserably in other areas. The fact that we've had until uh, the uh, American... Um, you know, the Obamacare legislation was put into place, 50 million Americans uninsured is, you know, perfect evidence of the fact that free markets don't work in all areas. So the government has to play a big role and it has to be providing... Where, where for goods. example? Well, public goods, you know, safety, uh, education, uh, public education. Uh, but it's not, you know, we don't have a very good educate basic education system. Uh, we're We've given up on our kids in that area, and that's like tragic because that's the entire equation for getting uh, to more equality through time. We do need to have uh, a change in ethics. We need to have the rich understand that the kids of everybody are their kids. Uh, if their kids aren't going to make, if everybody's kid isn't going to be making any money, at some point they're not going to be able to buy the the products that these um, corporate um, tycoons are trying to sell. So. Things have to work together. We need to get back to the values that uh, Ralph was, you know, saw back in his community. And uh, but I'll just give you an example. You know, I, I grew up in uh, next to Camden, New Jersey. My dad had and his brothers had the first and last department store in Camden, New Jersey. Hmm. So what happened there was white flight. Um, blacks from the south or poor moved into Camden, and there was a lot of crime. White, white community left. Uh, malls opened up. 
my dad's department store gradually went down the tubes. The last night it was open, it was broken to three times. So there was this basic public good, which is security, you know, police protection that wasn't provided. Uh, I just read in the New York Times about a week ago that Camden City has decided to use the Camden County Police Force, and things have dramatically turned around. It took 30 years for them to figure out that uh, uh, they needed to actually have a public good. You know, if, if there was a, when my dad's department store failed, there was one business district left. The fact that he was – all they had to do was have one police car in that district 24-7, and that store would have survived – and that community would have survived in a, in a much better way. So public goods are, are critical. We're not having any kind of collective discussion about them. And uh, and so that's – and we are running enormous – you know, uh, what we do have is uh, uh, the need for programs like Social Security, health care, collective health care. We need a tax system that makes sense. We need to have a, a, a banking reform that's actually real, that isn't just a sop to um, – uh, to these big banks. We, we, we don't have a public conversation that, that puts the general health of a community, Winston, Connecticut, Camden, New Jersey, Boston, Massachusetts, for that matter, uh, above the mantra, above the, whether it's mythology or or uh, religion or whatever, of free market capitalism. That is a great puzzle to me. Yeah, it's like these cities like Detroit, which we're just uh, you know giving up on them as opposed to really saying how can we actually turn things around? Uh, how is it that you know are we going to allow uh, you know within a mile of where we are right now, Chris? We've got murders going on every few nights. Uh, that should not be happening. It should just <laughs> we should have enough police protection in the low income parts of Boston so that. This is just a safe place for people to live. I mean, there's some basic things that just aren't happening because the rich don't see the rest of the country. Uh, we don't see ourselves as a collective entity. We don't focus on collective interests. I think we are very heterogeneous. We've got uh, black and Hispanic younger people. We've got white older people. The white older people are not investing in the black and Hispanic kids. Uh, they're trying to engage in take as you go, and they've been doing it for 60 years. Older generations have been taking from the young that they don't see as their own kids. Maybe they're a different ethnic group, maybe different race, religion, blah, blah, blah. But we've been rent playing, paying, playing take-as-you-go for 60 years. We have now Social Security, which is in far worse shape than the Detroit pension systems. It's totally broke. We've got Medicare and Medicaid are going broke. Uh, we've got uh, Obamacare can be extremely expensive. Nobody's kind of kept a, a look at the overall fiscal picture uh, and so the long-term fiscal bills in this aging society are enormous. They've been kept off the books. Government has taken money from people, promised them huge transfer payments in old age, and called the money they've taken from them taxes and the transfer payments uh, – sorry, the, the money they've, they've taken from pe uh, pe young people, they've called taxes, and then, then they've promised them transfer payments in the future. Those transfer payments are not put on the books. That simple choice of language has kept – uh, almost all the obligations of the government uh, off the books. I want to ask Jeff Madrick. I mean, good ideas, bad ideas. Is that an economist you could you you could you could live with, Jeff Madrick? Well, no. I, I mean, I think uh, you know. I think Larry deeply uh, exaggerates the liability problem. Um, the, our economy would have to f fall off. Why I, I don't know what the what the uh, metaphor would be, but would not only have to collapse, but virtually disappear for us not to be able to meet 
uh, many of the commitments he's talking about. But economists do, there are, and uh, Larry said there are 20,000 economists. There are not 20,000 different ideas out there. They by and large subscribe to a, a, variety, a consensus of ideas. Many economists do talk about public goods, but I do agree with Larry. We don't talk enough about them. They are very difficult problems, but we are not talking about for lack of a better way of putting it, what we really owe each other as a society. We, we, a lot of that has to do with uh, e- what's happened to economic, a lot of it, not all of it, maybe not even most of it, but a lot of it has to do with what's happened to economic thinking. Uh, uh, give, give Larry a, a, another chance to express his, Jeff. Jeff, um, if you go to uh, www.theinformact.org, theinformact.org, you will find... Over 1,200 economists, including 17 Nobel Prize winners who've endorsed the Inform Act, which is saying that we need to do long-term fiscal gap accounting where we put everything on the books, all the obligations. Now, when you do that, you see that the true debt of the country is $210 trillion. It's not the $13 trillion in official debt that you're focused on. Larry? Now, that's no way – hang on a second. This is the entire creme de la creme of the economics profession who says we need to add correctly. Jeff, with all due respect, you can't add. And and your kids and my oh, kids please, and Larry. other people uh, kids please, are just Larry, cannot cannot be facing. Assets. Look at look you're at the the Social Security Trustees report. Look at the tape. Yeah. Chris, can I get a quick word? That's why there's a double entry system in accounting. You don't only account the liabilities. You account you account for the income. Yeah, yeah. This is the net tax. This is the net birth. This is the net fiscal gap, Jeff. If you just looked at it, it's two hundred ten trillion dollars net. Social security can be closed. Well, you just don't understand the numbers. These are from the CBO. These calculations, and you've got the entire profession. I'm talking about it from the Social Security Administration. I just, I just hate it when people tell you you just. Well, all you have to do, uh, Jeff, is look at the table six F one in the trustees report just released by Social Security. Social Security trustees report. In July, it says they have got a $25 trillion unfunded liability that's 33% underfinanced. So don't tell me I don't know what the, the numbers are. These are the numbers. You're not looking at the right numbers. Uh, c- come back to the, 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 the you big... You told me I didn't know what the numbers are. I'm telling you that most economists disagree and realize we need a small tax increase to cover our future Social Security liability. I'm interested not in the numbers, but the, the vulnerability of this economy and this society. You say we could be Argentina, which once upon a time was a, was a huge yeah. economic most model in the world. Most when you have 1,200 economists from every top department, every the, if you, the economists you talk to agree with you, Jeff, but that's a small number. If you take 17 Nobel Prize winners that are on that list, these are from both political parties. You've got people ranging from Jeff Sachs to Glenn Hubbard, left and right, saying we have a 210 trillion hour fiscal gap problem that we have driven the country broke. And this is one of the reasons why we cannot do a lot of basic things we should be doing to, for our kids and, uh, you know, the public goods, providing the public goods because we are broke. And What's our, vulnerable, our vulnerability, Ralph, as a, as a giant econ- economic power? The, the, the Medicare, Medicare is heading for trouble because we have a corrupt, wasteful, monopolistic, redundant health care system. If you had a single-payer system, you would, uh, you would insure everybody in this country for half the price of what we're now paying, which is $9,400 per capita. In Canada, it's $4,500 per capita, and they cover everybody. And we, we still don't cover about 40 million people. So, that, you see, that 
You go back, waste built into our economy means more sales. Waste in energy uh, means more sales for ExxonMobil. Uh, waste and not focusing on preventive medicine means more drugs and more treatment, etc. And the other thing that almost economists never talk about is the intermodal issue. If we stop being an empire and stop spending $800 billion a year when there's no more Soviet Union for our military budget, and stop engaging in the wars of aggression that are unconstitutional. The Iraq war, according to Joe Stieglitz, before the next 20 years is going to cost us $3 trillion. If we brought that money home to rebuild our country, that's where the immediate jobs in every community, repairing, repairing highways, bridges, schools, uh, community clinics, libraries, sewage, water systems, public transit. These jobs pay pretty well, and they can't be exported to China. They also generate tax revenue. They generate secondary economic activity. We got a huge child poverty program, uh, problem in this country. Child hunger is going up. Why? Why do you have Because it is a concentrated political economy, and I use the word political and economy, government and the economy, in the hands of a few who are deciding for the many. And they get rewarded for collapsing the economy. They get rewarded for paying themselves $11,000 an hour like the CEO of Walmart pays, and he's presiding over a million workers who make less than they made in 1968 adjusted for inflation. Ralph, they I want to deal with the maldistribution of power. Ralph, I want to know how close you can come to embracing Larry Kotnikoff's kind of uh, cultural shift back to thinking of communities and the country whole. I think, uh, I think that the best magazine on this point is Yes Magazine. It chronicles the growth of community-based economies. Credit unions, community banks, local renewable energy, farmer to consumer markets, which are expanding very rapidly now, uh, local transport, self-reliance, uh, and uh, uh, community health clinics that emphasize prevention. Uh, there's a huge uh, growth here proportionally. It's in the tens of billions of dollars. And the more it grows, the more self-reliant the communities become, the less independent on absentee giant corporations who are making the decisions uh, for them. And the, the more likely that kids will get their jobs locally. Right now, there are whole communities all over the country denuded, including my hometown, denuded of jobs for high school kids. They get out, they're gone. When, and some of them are homeless. Some of them are working part-time jobs in McDonald's. We have a great public works deferred maintenance opportunity here. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Maddock, I want to I come back to um, first an assumption that we're, we're, we could be in very serious trouble here, but we ain't revolutionaries and, uh, you know, communism is not an alternative. We're going to have to work our way through pragmatic realism until it takes hold again. Pick among those good ideas we spoke about, including enterprise and innovation, uh, <coughs> that would work against the bad ones. That would work well, in you know, a, Ralph mentions two of them. One is he calls it a public works opportunity. I completely agree with that. We talked about that right at the beginning, infrastructure spending of a very serious, a very serious level. Uh, and a, a single-payer insurance system, which could reform, seriously reform and reduce costs and improve health care outcomes. 
those are major ideas now. Are we going to get single payer? I don't think so, but we got to, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, I always argue we need it, and I think it, if it could come, there could come a point where we can get it that even Obamacare can turn into something like it over time. So those are two. Uh, very good ideas that can put us on one, the right one, one from you, Larry Kotlikoff, in, yeah. in, briefly. Well, I think we actually have a single – to a large part, we got the government paying for Medicare, Medicaid, employer health care, employer-based health care through the tax subsidy and Obamacare. So we do have a single payer. We just have a very, very poorly organized system. We need to make, uh, make a, a much more competitive system. That's what the Purple Health Plan does. That's a first round on getting to know capitalism. And, and making it work better uh, with Lawrence Kotlikoff. Thank you, Larry. Ralph Nader and Jeff Madrick. You'll find a longer version of our conversation with Jeremy Grantham on our website and a very long walk with Ralph Nader around his hometown in Connecticut. We'll be doing more on the economy in weeks ahead. Help us plan our series on capitalism at radioopensource.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Maria Jose Fabre, and Max Larkin. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our COO. I'm Christopher Leiden.